Music, news, entertainment, it's all right here. This is The Kelly Alexander Show. Hi, it's Kelly, and this week we chat with author, ghostwriter, journalist, and editor Ian Gittins talking about the ins and outs of being a writer and the different hats he has to wear depending on what project he's currently working on. We also welcome up-and-coming Canadian R&B artist Miles Costello, who hails from Toronto, chatting about his latest single, Sangria, and the work that he's putting in to take his career to new heights. Miles, how are you? I'm good. I'm really good, actually. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for making time for us. Uh, for people who don't know about you yet, I'm going to pick your brain a little bit. So can you tell people how you got into music, uh, you know, growing up in Toronto? Um, I guess I always liked music growing up, but um, I didn't really start taking it seriously until I had an injury. Um, I used to be a gymnast and I ended up just kind of doing other sports on the side. And then one of those sports was BMX, like biking and tricking and stuff. So I ended up breaking my arm on my on my bike, and then I ended up with all this time off from training. So I ended up picking up a guitar, and then from there just started like writing songs and just kind of starting the creative process of uh, of making music. But yeah, it was definitely always there. But it was that moment, I guess, that really kind of switched it over for me. And when you you picked up the guitar, uh, did you sort of feel like that was your, like your spirit instrument, or did you think you were all, you're going to learn to play other things? Because I think I read that you know how to play the piano too. Yeah, I started on piano. Like that was my first thing, and then like I did that as a kid, so it's kind of like my home base. And even with the guitar, it just kind of helps me sort things out still from a visual standpoint. But yeah, guitar was just kind of an easy thing for me to gravitate to. All my friends in high school were playing it. The ones that actually I uh, did music, so it was easy for me to pick up and kind of get a couple of different people's opinions and get them to help me out along the way. So, yeah, I'm definitely sticking with it, if anything. And how would you describe your sound? Because in listening to your music, I kind of get this, like, new soul kind of vibe from you. So would you, like, explain your music that way, or how would you explain your type of music? Yeah, definitely, I guess the R&B part of it is the is the soul aspect, and I think... Um, a lot of the music I listen to, especially if we're talking guitar alone, it's like influenced by um, blues. So it mel- melodies and stuff and just kind of the emotion aspect of it, I like to kind of carry in from there. So it definitely has that soul aspect to it and a bit of pop, a little bit of R&B, and that's kind of home base for me. Who is your absolute favorite artist? Do you have one? I don't have an absolute favorite. I mean, Frank Ocean is one of my favorite artists. Um, for sure. Uh, absolute favorite is, is difficult. Depends on the day, how I'm feeling. <laughs> That's a good answer. I like that. Uh, who yeah. is, is Miles listening to, though, now, like, in his phone? Like, who are you listening to? Uh, I'm listening to, I mean, more recently, Drake's new stuff. I still listen to Charles Gambino. Um, I listen to Coda, the friend, another rapper. Uh, J. Cole, I like a lot. Um, Halsey is cool. Like now, different different artists from different genres. I think the ones that I kind of bounce between are usually um, R and B, rap, and I guess more singer songwriter genres. But those are kind of the artists I've been circulating recently. And being from Toronto, obviously Drake uh, kind of has a big influence. I think over every Toronto artist in some kind of way, just because of the way that he still cares for the city. Not to mention the way that his career has gone, um, and the fact that he's even back there now, building that huge mansion and, and living back in the city. I think most of the time. Um, 
what is like what is having him as a Torontonian mean to you? Like, do you look up to him quite a bit, and and how he's gone about his his career? Yeah, I mean, it, it's like I think for anybody, it's like he inspires people outside of music. I think to even just do right and to kind of go for it and like Toronto I guess before the Bieber the weekend Drake it's like it had a different look to it right I, it, I don't I wouldn't even say stigma but it was kind of the underdog right mm-hmm. and I, he definitely brought it on to, to the mainstream to a point where it was like Toronto is definitely uh on the map and it it is inspiring I think because it, it just kind of lets you know that things are are happening and that they can happen from anywhere really nowadays your latest single is called sangria tell us how it came about was it a challenging song to write and put together and how did you know that you wanted to release that particular song as a single uh it wasn't challenging for sure that song kind of came up pretty quickly i had like once i got the idea um i was at this writing camp and i was with this other producer named maya and we were working on we're just like kind of listening to different beats. And then she had this one like baseline that I kind of gravitated towards. And then I started doing some guitar improvising over it. And it kind of became the main section for that song. So from there, I just kind of took it home, wrote to it with the idea I had. And then that was it. Do you find that there is a consistency between all of the singles you put out so far, or do you find that you're like continuing to evolve and you're not even sure where you're headed at the moment? Yeah, I think definitely evolving. Like I have a pretty solid sense of where I want to go going forward in terms of like the creative process and all that. But I think um, in terms of like the recent singles or the past singles I put out, it's like they all have different flavors like they, there's some things that are in that are in there that I guess you can kind of say are in the other songs as well like certain elements musically but the flavors are all different I don't want to keep things evolving as I go as well and develop and grow and everything and for you like I read that um obviously everybody all artists have been affected by the current situation in the world and um I'm just wondering like I read that you had done some virtual tours how did that feel to do your performances that way and do you think that's going to be in some regard a way of the future it definitely felt weird at first um and I feel like I did it pretty early on too like now I'm seeing like more things pop up like that like I kind of did it right like it was I think like February or something okay. in March where I kind of got started going with it. And it was weird at first just cause it was like, there's no audience, right? You're, you're playing uh, to a phone. So in that sense, it was a bit strange and then it got a little more comfortable and it was kind of a way to keep up the, the live chops at the same time considering. So I think going forward, everything's going to kind of lean towards that. I mean, there's already artists, who are like getting on to like big virtual tours or setting up virtual shows and even going forward after the whole pandemic it's probably going to stay that way and continue to be at least an option mm-hmm. even though live music's going to come back it's definitely going to be in the conversation still can you tell us a little bit about your journey to sign with warner music because not everybody gets a record deal and so i'm just wondering like what it is about yourself that you think stuck out for warner to take a chance on you I think the the biggest thing was that I I think work work ethic was a big thing for me. It was I like I interned there. Like I, before I even got signed there, I was an intern there. I got in. I kind of learned the business side of things. Um, I I was doing another program. Um, it was an artist 
entrepreneur or artist development program and they like kind of bumped heads and they both knew about me and then we ended up I ended up working with both Warner and then Coalition Music at the same time so I think just kind of the consistency and me just showing up every day and just kind of being eager to learn and then aside from that they asked me to play one day in the office and then I played kind of at this Christmas party thing and then that was where it was really like oh like oh this kid has something like let's like, let's get something going with him. That's really amazing. That's so a really good story. Naturally, yeah. Like it came, yeah. It's it's always good when things are organic. Yeah, that's cool. That's for sure. Um, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was definitely pre-planned on my end. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about the state of R&B in Canadian music? Like, how do you find it's going? Do you find that there is um, other artists like you where you know that there's a bit of a community? Because I know, like, for example, I work in pop radio, so I end up interviewing a lot of people like uh, Tyler Shaw and Scott Hellman, who, of course, would be a label mate of yeah. yours, and and just like like Rhea May, like all those people that you kind of see at the Juno Awards, Um and that get consistent yeah. radio play across the country. And obviously they, I think, have a, a niche. I think they all have like even a mutual um, respect and, and friendship with each other. And I'm just wondering like if you feel like yeah. you have that. Uh, like, no, I think definitely. I think the only one I haven't actually talked to is Tyler out of those three. So Tyler's only, yeah, I haven't really got to know him at all. I think I met him one time. But yeah, it's, it, there's definitely like a mutual respect for everybody there. For sure. And I think, um, yeah, I always try and keep, like, stay kind of in my zone in terms of the sound of it. And I think pop is definitely one of those elements, but I always try and bring other flavors of just kind of what I grew up listening to into the music as well. And what does Miles hope for himself for, like, the next six months to, like, a year? Like, is an album coming? Is it important for you to drop an EP? Like, what's the plan? Yeah, I'm right now, I just, finished my EP so I'm excited to get that out called Excess and um, getting ready to release that I've been working on the live show for it just started getting that together and then honestly once music's able to kind of resume in the live setting it's, I want to get to playing shows with it and just playing all the new music for people that's per- kind of top of my list right now that's perfect. And how do you find social media is playing a part in the development of your career? Like, are you able to reach enough people? Do you think at the moment, do you think it's organically spreading through the channels that way, especially because at the moment you can't be out performing live shows, really? Yeah, I think definitely uh, like live shows is the best way to do it because it's like you really capture people in a different way, whereas social media, it's kind of like they don't, you don't really get the full picture sometimes, mm-hmm. I find. And it's like, in terms of you don't always want to just be, you know, promoting, promoting stuff on there. So it's like when people see you live, it's like they know right there if they like you. They don't have to see you a hundred times to kind of decide, I find. And what message but would I you think, give yeah, to... Uh, definitely better. And what message would you give to like an up-and-coming artist who's kind of like maybe where you were a year ago or maybe even two years ago, like knowing where you are now and obviously knowing that you still have a bunch of your journey left to go, but what would you want to do to help give someone a leg up behind you and be like, I wish I had known this? I think um, definitely just to focus on one, networking, and then two, your craft. Like those are going to be the biggest things for you at any point in your career I think so to continue to like meet people work with different people from a creative standpoint and just from a knowledge standpoint and a friendship standpoint and then just really zooming in on your craft and putting in those those 10,000 hours right and just kind of 
really getting in the zone of what you want your sound to be like and understanding that who you are and who you want to present to the world, right? So that's definitely the big two things I'd say are, are marketing and your craft. Miles, thank you so much for this. It's been awesome to have you on and I can't wait to hopefully meet you in person one of these fine thank days. Thank you. That is, uh, again, Toronto artist Miles Costello, and you can grab all of his social media handles from his website, milescostello.com. The Kelly Alexander Show. Joining us on the show is author, ghostwriter, journalist, and editor Ian Gittens, who hails from the UK. Ian started out as a music journalist for Melody Maker and over time branched out into editing autobiographies and then began writing them himself. Ian has collaborated with international superstars like Nikki Six of Motley Crue, Shane Filan of Westlife, Sir Billy Connolly, and Judas Priest singer Rob Halford. Ian, thank you so much for spending time with us on The Kelly Alexander Show. You're very welcome. So I wanted to ask you how you got your start in music journalism. That was really quite easy. I was at university in the 1980s. Um, I used to love the enemy, used to read the enemy like the Bible every week. Uh, I knew that was what I wanted to do. And when I left university, I just wrote all the music papers. Uh, wrote to the, we had three then, Enemy, Melody Maker, and Sounds. Wrote to all three of them. Uh, Melody Maker wrote back. One big advantage that, that I wasn't living in London. There were loads and loads of people in London doing the music press thing. Uh, I was living near to Birmingham. So I spent a year near Birmingham, um, interviewing local bands, doing the big gigs, the, the, the touring bands that were coming through. Uh, then moved down to London. And over the years, just started doing, you know, doing bigger interviews, doing more work, working for more magazines, moving into books. But it was really gradual. I, th- I think a lot easier to start then than start now, to be honest, because the magazines just aren't there now to start with. It's a different landscape completely. And were you, like, right away taken by the music industry, like, since you were a kid? No, really. I mean... When I, was, when I went to university at 18, and that's when I really... I, I, I like music. I bought singles like everyone did, you know. I was buying David Bowie singles and T-Rex and Queen and that kind of stuff in the 70s. But my, my interest was really, really to do with the writing, in a way, more than the music. I used to be this guy, Paul Morley, who was a big news journalist in the, in, in the 80s in Britain. I used to love his stuff. And I thought, I want to do that. Or that's, that's the job I want to do, you know. Um, and then I moved to London, started, doing, started becoming the music journalist, and I realised that, he had a very distinctive writing style, which I couldn't do and didn't want to copy him anyway, you know, and, and I found my own, my own different way of doing it. What's your process for you? Uh, like, what's the difference, I should say, in the process, whether you're writing a book yourself or you're ghostwriting? It's really very different. Um, when you're ghostwriting, you have to think your way into the person's head. You have to become that person in a lot of ways. Uh, without being too pretentious, you have to be them for a little while. Um, uh, what I've found, uh, what I do now, because I've done quite a lot of ghostwriting books now, I'll interview the person for seven, eight times, two, three-hour sessions. We can have 20 hours of conversation be- before I write a word. Um, and a few times people have said, are you going to write anything? Then? I've been talking to you for two months now, <laughs> I haven't seen a word. But it just means that when I do come to write, um, that they're so ingrained in my head. Um, I mean, I've spent weeks with... Uh, you know, Nikki Six. Nikki Six was different because that book was based on his diary entries. So that was a sort of different kettle of fish, really. But, but you know, people like um, I did the book of David Essex. I spent weeks talking to him before I started writing. Um, Rob Halford, I spoke to for more than forty hours. Normally, for these sort of books, you do about between fifty and twenty hours. I'd say Rob, we were well over forty. Um, and the book that's coming out, Confess, is a huge, like a slab of a book. It's, it's enormous. It, it, it's called Confess, and, it's, and it's, it's his Bible, in a way. It looks like a Bible. It looks like a big, big slab of old-fashioned text. I can't wait. To, like, when I saw the news on your website, I'm, I was giddy. I'm like, I cannot wait for this book to come out. Um, speaking of that, of that process with Rob, for example, I know you said you, you have, like, at least 40 hours of, of um, conversation with him. How do you go about, like, do you tape those conversations, or are you making notes? I tape them, I tape the whole thing. And I used to, 
go home and religiously transcribe it myself for hours. Now I tend to send them off to an agency uh, um, because it just it, sometimes these books are really up against it. I did a book with um, uh, Billy Connolly, the comedian, and it was literally it was eleven weeks to the day from the second from the day that I first met him, shook his hand and had lunch with him, to me giving a completely booked to Penguin. Eleven weeks, um, and there's so little time. Sometimes I haven't got time to spend a day or two days transcribing interviews. I need to be kind of have a having the, the material fed back to me to, to work with. And I mentioned to you before we started the interview that I had read the Shane book from Westlife. And I'm just wondering, like, in, in that particular instance, like, did you go off to, like, Ireland to spend time with him? Or, like, how does that work? No, because he was based near London at the time. Um, okay. He'd gone bankrupt. Um, and he'd sold his enormous property in, in, uh, in, in Ireland uh, before he went bankrupt and, uh, and, and moved to live in London. So he was living. He was living with his wife and his three kids, um, quite near. Uh, and then, and then, about a year after the book came out, he moved back to Ireland. He went back and he found a place. And he always wanted to be there. I think he felt a little bit driven out of the country by what happened to him and the circumstances and the bankruptcy. So he always wanted to get back there. When you write books in in the first person for, for these artists. Uh, if there's little anecdotes and stuff that that they would have, like that they've mentioned in their conversations with you, do you then sort of embody that as you write it? Is that how that works? Yeah, you tell the same story in their voice, and okay. you find as accurately as you can to what they've said. Okay. Um, sometimes you put in a little joke for them to make it a little, you know. I mean, all of us, given the chance, write better than we speak. You know, we give you more consideration. It's, it's a more kind of um, it's a more thoughtful process in a lot of ways. Uh, so I, I take what they give me. I take the stories and the anecdotes and, and, and the life experiences, and I kind of mold them, uh, and I, I kind of help them to say it in their best voice, in a way. You know, if, they, if they'd had a chance to sit down and they, they normally haven't got time to, to write the book, which is why they hire me, you know, to write it for them. But I'll try and write what, what they would write if they had the chance to sit down and, and give the story some proper attention. When you transcribe, or when you have the, the transcription in front of you, do you like go through that then, Ian, and sort of put the book into sections like how you want it to go? Like, how do you put? I guess, I guess it just seems so overwhelming to me if you have like forty hours of audio or twenty hours of audio. It's transcribed now, but then you got to figure out how it's all going to play out. Exactly, and that's the really that's, that's the time-consuming part of it. Really, I mean, doing the interviews is normally really interesting, really, really exciting. Sometimes doing the writing is very fulfilling when you see the whole thing coming together. That, that, that bit in between where you've got the pickaxe out and you're saying, okay, that goes there. Because what people tend to do, people don't, people jump around in their stories. I mean, Rob Halford wouldn't, Rob Halford didn't talk me through from 1973 to 2020. I was asking about something that happened around British Steel in 1980. And you go, well, that was interesting because, oh, but something else that we did when we did um, Defenders of the Faith, and they'll jump forward to Painkiller. Um, and obviously, you, you let the conversation flow. I can't keep pulling him back, you know, like a child, go back to that. <laughs> So I have to, have to kind of let the conversation flow and, and go, go where he wants it to and then gently lead him back, coax him back. But then when I come to have the transcription, of course, I go, okay, this bit is 20 years later. Oh, that bit's five years earlier. And you do. I basically have all these files open for sections of, of you know. Uh, but then when that's all finished and I come to write, everything is in place. All, all, all the building bits are there. I know the voice super well because I spent 40 hours talking to the guy. I know all the material. And then, and then the actual writing itself can sometimes be a surprisingly speedy process. It's, it's the preparation that, that takes the time. That's what people don't realize because even like when I do interviews, people don't realize how much time I spend on the back end preparing so mm. that, you know, the interview flows well, hopefully, and that the artist feels like you've done your, your homework. Um, do you have a preference, uh, Ian, for what you write? Like, do you prefer writing? Because I know you also did a book on Depeche Mode uh, mm. last year. Like, do you pr like prefer writing your own stuff or do you like taking these people's stories and, and seeing them come to life? I think nowadays, if I'm honest, I'd probably prefer 
The ghost I've written a lot of books on my own name that I'm really proud of. I did a big book of, on Bjork years ago. I'm a huge Bjork fan, so I really enjoyed doing that. I did a book um, about Top of the Pops, the TV program that was on here for 40 years or more until it went off the air. Uh, when that went off the air, for the, I did a book for the BBC, just talking to oh, so many people who've been on it, from, from Meatloaf and Donny Osmond in the 70s right through to the current day. You know, um, And that was great doing that, really interesting. But nowadays, I'd say three quarters of what I do just tend to be ghostwriting, and I'm quite happy with that, really. How do you go about selecting your, your projects, Ian? Like, how do you... Yeah, because I'm sure, especially now, because you had, you've had such success, especially working with such major artists, I guess there's a lot of people coming to you. So how do you book your time out? It is the way... Yeah, naturally, a lot of people do come to me. That's how, I mean, Rob Halford was different because I, I chased him. I, I first emailed Rob Halford... Was it email? Yeah, emailed Rob Halford's management when Nikki Six book came out, I did a book on, with Nikki Six, The Heroin Diaries, came out in 2007. It was an amazing story. And I thought, my God, these heavy metal people have got great stories they've got. They're more fun than Radiohead. You know? <laughs> They're more fun than Cole. Who will also be great. And of course, Rob, with the whole story of coming out as gay in the 90s, Priest being so massive, playing Live Aid, being accused of trying to get their fans to kill themselves in court. And the main thing, you know, the, 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 just the years and years of being this macho world of heavy metal, having to hide his sexuality, I thought, what a great book, he must have. And the other thing that, I think in a way, what, what clinched it for me getting that book was we're from the same town. We both came from Walsall. Walsall near Birmingham. It's quite a distinctive, okay. distinctive <laughs> accent, you know. Um, when actually, when actually, I, when Rob, actually up from, for 10 years, Rob said, I, I never, never met the guy, I get, I get about once a year I'd email and say, any interest in doing the live story? His management email, they politely and say, no, not at all. Um, and, he, and I saw interviews where he said, I know I'll never write my life story. And I thought, okay, it's not good. But I, saw, I kept trying just for the hell of it, you know. Um, and then, uh, he's 69 now, he's 70 next year. And I think about a year ago, he just only thought, I want to write my story. You know, he got to the point in his life where he thought, I've got nothing to hide. Okay, I've done some really out there things, but why should I hide them? I'm happy with who I am. And then he, he went from saying he'd never write his story to really, really wanting to, to really needing to write his story, I think. Um, and, when, and when the manager went, oh, has this guy been emailing for the last 12 years? <laughs> uh, and he said he did Nicky Six's book. And, oh, by the way, he comes from Walsall. That was it. I think Rob said, he comes from Walsall. I'll do it with him then, you know? Um, and then I met him. I, I came out to, um, he lives in Atlanta. Um, no, uh, sorry, no, in Phoenix. So he lived in Phoenix. Okay. Uh, I, just, I did a week or so with him doing interviews and then came back to England and he came over for a few weeks to stay in England and I did a lot of interviews then. A lot more than I thought I would because 40 hours is really kind of quite extreme, you know. And But we got on really, really well. I mean, I was, I was not a huge Judas Priest fan. I wouldn't pretend that I was, you know, any more than I was a Motley Crue fan or, can I say, a Westlife fan, you know. And sometimes it helps to have that distance from the people that you're writing about. I mean, if I were to do a book with Bjork, I'd probably be tongue-tied and stupid and gabbling, you know. But when, when, when you go in and you... I don't say just a job, it's more than that, but when, when, when you don't adore the person, it, in a way it helps you take a kind of pressure off the relationship. Um, when I said to Rob that I'm not a huge Judas Priest fan, he said, good, good, I'm glad that you're not. You know, I'm glad that you know who we are, we know what we're about, but I'm glad you're not, you, you don't worship us. You know? <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. That's awesome. And talk to me about why you think um, so many artists have trusted you with their story. Well, I don't, I don't trust myself. It's in a way just, I mean... Normally, I'm, I'm sought out by publishers. Um, sometimes band managers, mostly it's publishers. I'll get a call from HarperCollins or Random House, say, do you want to do a book with, um, you know, uh, David Essex? And I say, yeah, that sounds interesting. David Essex has never heard of me. He, 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 he's, he's saying, get me that guy, I want him. Like, I wish he was, but it's not, it's not like that, really. It's more that I'm, I'm suggested by the management. 
or by a literary agent. Um, then I normally meet the person to have a chat, see if we if we don't hate each other, see if we get on and we can kind of have a connection. Normally, you know, normally it's that's kind of. I mean, they, they don't, oh, I had one or two that haven't come off, but no, normally they do, and then you just go. And then you you, you sit down with this person you've never even met before and ask the most intimate questions you can imagine, you know, about their childhood and their their first sexual experiences and, and their music tastes and their politics and these people who I know as well as I know you. I start asking these extraordinarily personal questions too. Um, but, you know, they go along with it. That they know that, you know, we need to ask these things for the book. And, and the, great, the great thing, I mean, they often don't trust journalists because they've been stissed by a newspaper so many times, bad headlines, misquoted, that kind of thing. They know with a book that I shall say, that they'll say everything I like and they can just put a red line. If, if, they, don't, if they don't like anything or, or they change their mind about telling you something, they can just take it out. They're, they're in control. They're in the driving seat. When you are done the book, do they go over everything? Like, how does it work for approval? What I tend to do nearly always, and it seems to work quite well, is I write the book and as I write it, I send it to them. I send a chapter at a time. So Rob Halford, um, after about 30 hours of interviews, I started writing. And I said, okay, Rob, here's the introduction. What do you think? Can you like it? And then, then I sent him through chapter one, his childhood years, and then I sent through the adolescent years. And and it just it's good because I think – they kind of trust me more. They can see what's coming through. They know they like what's happening. They know, they know it sounds like their voice and, and, it's, and, it's, and it's an accurate representation of them and their life. Uh, and, and if if I didn't do that, if I suddenly said, okay, here's 90,000 words of your life and they hate it, we, we're pretty screwed. <laughs> what can we do? At least if it, I mean, Nicky Six is a great example. When I, um, when I wrote an introduction for his book for him, um, he said, hey, dude, that's great. But I don't say dude that many times. <laughs> I said it twice in that sentence. Oh, dude, did I? You know? <laughs> but you get used to the book. I mean, normally you find that the first one or two chapters that I send, somebody might say, I wouldn't say that. That, doesn't sound, that. that sentence doesn't sound quite like me. And then we tweak or take it out. But then after that, it's normally very little gets changed, really, because I get used to being them. They trust me being them. And it normally goes really smoothly at that point. I, and correct me if I'm wrong, have you done ghostwriting for female artists? I know you, you have the book about Bjork, but, but I'm wondering if you've ever actually worked with a female artist. I haven't, and I'm really interested by that. I mean, in fact, one of, the, one of the few times that I went for a book and didn't get it was, the, it was, it was uh, Sharon Osborne. Okay. Uh, actually, oddly enough, I, I used to also do, I worked for the Guardian newspaper over here, um, and about, oh, I don't know when it would be, 2002 or three maybe, I suggested to them just I'd do an interview with Sharon Osborne around one of the big Oz festivals. And they said, Yeah, who is she? Because it was before she'd been on the X Factor, before she before she had that kind of reality show push, you know, when she was just a music industry figure. I had to explain to them, well, she's this woman, she's married towards the Osborne, she's his wife, but she's way more than that. She saved his life back in the eighties. She's a force of nature, she's she, she's really kind of groundbreaking in the way she does things and you don't want to cross her and and and, and a soul, you know. And so I went to interview Sharon Osborne. Um and we got on really well. And she had amazing stories. She's so funny, you know. Uh, she'd, say, she'd say, oh, Eminem writes songs about trying to kill his wife. My husband actually tried to do it. She's <laughs> <laughs> great my lines all the way through. Uh, and after the interview, actually, as I was packing my stuff away, I said, you know, you, you should do your life story because you, you've got an amazing story. And she said, oh, darling, I haven't got time to do that. I'm far too busy. Uh, I said, no, no, not, not do it yourself. Get a ghostwriter to do it. At the time, I didn't mean me. So I hadn't started ghostwriting. This was before Nikki Six, so I hadn't done any ghostwriting. I said, find yourself a ghostwriter. Um, and a week later, I got a call from her saying, oh, are you going to come write my life story then? I said, well, I wasn't really meaning me. And she said, well, come to LA. I'll put you in the Sunset Marquee for a week and we'll talk and see what you come up with. And if I like it, we'll do the book. And actually, oddly enough, the first day I got to the house to interview her was um, the first day they were filming the Osbournes. 
Wow. Walked in the, I, I got given the address, got a cab over there, front door was open, walked in, hello, darling, she came to meet me. And all the people setting up mic, boom mics and cameras and lights. And I said, what's, what's this? What's and she said, Ian, do you know what this is? MTV, going to film me and walking around the house. They're giving us so much money for it. Who's going to watch it? And I think she really thought that she pulled a password on them, you know, for, and of course it became this phenomenon. Took off straight away, you know. But anyway, the point was when I, when I, I interviewed her for a few days, probably like you know five six hours, came back to London uh, and started to write it. Um, I didn't give it my full attention. I didn't give it my best shot, I think, because I don't know. It, just, it, it didn't seem to quite sit right to me. But also, some of the material she told me about was um, very painful. When she and Ozzy were both drinking, Ozzy was in a real bad state. And he sometimes hit her. It could be quite abusive. The, the police got caught to their house. And there's one time he was very drunk on vodka and she thought he was going to kill her. Uh, and she told me this again. I wrote it. And I, I didn't think at the time I was getting the full experience of it. Um, and basically, I sent the stuff to her and I got a message back, thank you, but no thank you. And, and then about a year or two later, the book came out with a female ghostwriter. Um, and I thought it was really good. And it was phenomenal. By then, she'd taken off in Britain as this kind of you know, reality show judge. Um, and that did really well. And I haven't really since then um, had an opportunity to work with a female. I, I'm wary. I'm, I'd like, part of me, I'd like to see if I could do it. And part of me thinks maybe a female would get the, the perspective better of their life. I don't know. I'm, I'm in two minds about that one. And in your, because obviously I'm assuming that just like I work in radio, so I know a lot of different radio personalities. I'm assuming you know a fair amount of different ghostwriters. Are, are there enough female ghostwriters, in your opinion, like in the industry? No, I really don't because, I mean, maybe you go to radio conferences, maybe you meet other people at the radio station, but when you're a ghostwriter, it's superbly solitary. I mean, really, apart from the time you spend with the subject, you don't talk to other people, you, you aren't doing makeup interviews. Occasionally you do, but not normally. Um, you just sit at your desk writing. Um, so I, I know the good writers by, by name, by reputation. Um, are there enough good female ones? I don't know. There could be. I mean, there's a, a woman called Sylvie Simmons that I know did a really good book wasn't strictly ghostwriting, but a lot of it was from his perspective on, on Leonard Cohen about two years ago, and that was great. Okay. Uh, yeah, people are out there for sure. Yeah. Joining us on the Kelly Alexander Show is author Ian Gittens, who has uh, collaborated with artists like Nikki Six of Motley Crue, Sir Billy Connolly, and Rob Halford of Judas Priest. You can learn more about him on his website, iangittens.com. Um, now that you've had so much accomplishment in, in the world of, of music and entertainment, what is, like, what is left for Ian Gittens to accomplish? Like, what does he want to do? That's a good question, really. I mean, I thought for quite a long time what I'd like to do was um, write for TV, maybe TV sitcoms. Uh, in fact, I wrote one a few years ago, 10 years ago, maybe. Uh, it was got as far as an agent loving it and getting shown to a TV station. And it was really unfortunate because the, it, was, it was about the excesses of the tabloid media and, and, and gossip columns, and it was set on a particularly scurrilous tabloid in London. Um, and one of the main characters, one of the main theme lines of, of, of the, the sitcom was um, the pursuing, hounding um, a poor, young, very drug-troubled female pop star um, who was not too far away from Amy Winehouse really, at the time. She's in all the papers here every day. Um, and written, obviously, from her point of view, very sympathetically, you know, it was a, they were the ogres. But then just as we got to the point where we'd finished it and we get a lot of interest in it, Amy Winehouse sadly died. Um, and there's no way we could have continued with them. Um, we'd have to rewrite the whole thing, you know. And I think it's only really cool, that was about the time... I, a couple of big books came along and suddenly I was doing those and then suddenly I became a dad and suddenly that was kind of <laughs> so I think maybe I'm, I'm destined to be a ghostwriter now I think it suits me I like doing it and it kind of and in fact I got a bit of a, a bit of news today just announced a new book today which I've been working on just uh, in October which is Cliff Richard oh wow 
that big in Canada. He never really happened in the States, but he's enormous here. He's like the year zero of pop music, you know, 1957 and move it and all that. Uh, I've just been working on his book for the last um, last year nearly, and we just finished it. Wow. That's really interesting. So obviously, as well as inventing, you know, taking what Elvis did in the States and bringing it to Britain in 57, 58, 59, he then became this massive family entertainer. And of course, five years ago, I had the whole, you know, the whole unfortunate thing with her being accused of sex offences, which he's completely innocent of, but he had two, three years of hell, really. You know, when he, couldn't, he was trying to clear his name and people were assuming he was guilty. And he was a 74-year-old man who was accused, not a young man who was accused. And there's a lot to deal with. And I think it nearly broke him. You know, he says that it was the worst time of his life by a long way. And he's taught... He talked at great length and great, very passionately to me about that in great detail, and I'm, I'm really pleased with the way... I'm pleased he's got the chance to tell his story, you know, because it, these are just his unvarnished words on what happened to him. And that's going to come out a month after Rob... I was writing at the same time as Rob Halford. Oh, it wow. Was a really long, hard winter. You know? <laughs> and in some ways, when the pandemic came along, my life didn't change. I, I've been... <laughs> sort of you know self-quarantining for about, about six months by then anyway but you couldn't find two more different but i was never going to confuse clifford and rob halford you know the, 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 you're never going to confuse those two subject matters so at least at least they're very distinctive from each other is there someone right now like in the world of pop or or just like in music in general that that you would love to have the chance to to do their story like is is there someone yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, no, I haven't got one burning person because as I, I'm talking to somebody at the second whose music I really, really like, and that, and that was probably the first time, if I'm honest, that I took on a project where I absolutely loved the person's music beforehand. Some of the people, a good example is Judas Priest. With Judas Priest, I um, uh, I was quite lukewarm towards them. Then, and then well, the book played a lot of music, and I really liked them. I think there's a lot to them, a lot more than just a metal band. You know, there's a lot more kind of interesting ideas going on. And I can't really say who the person is because he hasn't even agreed to do it yet. We're just talking, you know, but... Yeah. I've one or two people, yeah. I probably won't name any names at the second. That's done. okay. <laughs> and uh, what advice would you give to, um, like, an aspiring writer who wants to do what, what you do? Like, how 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 do they... Because I'm sure it's it's long hours, lonely hours, you know, having to... And, be, and to be lot, a lot of self-discipline to do what you do. It's really hard. Um, I mean, I said earlier, the start of the interview, that it's a lot harder... To, I've done, I've done two things. The first thing is being a music journalist, and that is really, really hard now uh, because there are no magazines here. I mean, when I when I started out, there were three weekly magazines in um, Enemy Melodica Sounds, and then loads of monthly magazines. There was like Q, Select, Fox, all these magazines, um, but all, none of them exist now. Q Magazine actually closed last week. Oh, wow. Six years, it's funny. It was 34 years, so it closed last week. Um, the only magazines that are still going music-wise are magazines for... The older music fan, the Mojo's and Uncuts that on the cover have Bob Dylan for the 47th time or Neil Young or yet another Beatles retrospective. Basically, the, the generation who grew up buying magazines about music they will still do that, but they're, they're now aging and the artists are aging as well. So it's really hard. I mean, if you want to start as a music journalist, I think my first advice would be don't expect to make a huge amount of money out of it because, you know, it's not well paid. There are websites, obviously, now that, you know, but, but they tend to pay really badly or not pay at all. They, they, they say, do you, want to, do you want to review a record for the, the prestige of seeing your name in, on, on the site? And it doesn't pay the mortgage that well, prestige. <laughs> it's just a nice, nice theory. But, so it's hard. I mean, I would say if you really want to do it, just make sure you know, make sure you, what you want to write about. Make sure that you really love it and write about things that you really love and hope you find an outlet. Just, just try everywhere you can to find an outlet for that, for that stuff. And, and the ghostwriting thing, I mean, it's hard because it's quite a hard thing to get into. Once you're into it, like most things, work will come to you sometimes. But... 
the best way is to is to have a book, have a subject. I mean, if you can go to if you go to a publisher and say, "I'd like to go try music books," they'll probably say, "Well, join the queue." You know, of course. Yeah. If you can say, "I want to, I want to go try um, uh, a Meatloaf's book," and Meatloaf agreed to let me do it, that's a very different conversation, obviously. You know, so the best thing is to, if you can, if you know an artist, somebody who hasn't done the story yet, or you, you see somebody who's got a great story, hasn't written it. Approach them, approach the management and say, would, would you like a conversation about this? Have, basically, in both fields, I think, have ideas. That's, that's the only way forward. And are publishers these days, Ian, like open to, to like, are they all constantly looking for stories? Like, you know, or is it, is it getting tougher and tougher to get books made because the industry is evolving and changing? No, they still want to publish music books. Um, it's getting harder to do the sort of more niche fringe figures, you know? I mean... Books on, I don't know, Pavement or Zebedo or Vampire Weekend, those can be quite hard sales sometimes. You might, it's to go and look at a little independent publisher, like an independent record label, not being paid so much, you know, just hoping the book takes off. But, but the big names, I mean, if, if Paul McCartney if suddenly at 78 decides to, he will do his life story after all, there would be an enormous auction of, of multi-million pound offers. You know, Elton John did finally go around to doing his book last year. It was a fantastic book, by the way. Really, I, I read it. It was great. Very funny, yeah. Um, those kind of names that are going to guarantee sellers across the globe, there's always going to be markets for those. It's, it's the smaller the smaller books that are getting squeezed and getting harder to find deals for. And for an artist that might be considering writing the book themselves, like, do you suggest they do that? Or like, like how does that work for an artist? Because like, do you think just because they might be good at writing songs might not mean they're good at writing their story? Yes, that's a good point. And a lot of people have come a complete cropper trying to do that. I mean, Morrissey, Morrissey insisted on writing the life story himself with no ghost, and it was dreadful. It was awful. I mean, he, he, he's a fantastic song lyricist, one of the very, very best song lyricists. But I think when you, when you come to write your own life story, I think it can seem like the biggest job in the world. You've got to take your essence and put it in, on paper and get it all exactly right. It's really intimidating thing to do, you know. I've had one or two. I mean, Rob Halford, I think, initially thought about writing it himself and maybe having someone like me in just to help him along and coax him a little bit. But I think then he thought, no, I want somebody else to do this. And he's, he's really happy with how it worked out, and so am I. Not very few people can actually write their own book themselves. I mean, actually speaking about the Smiths, Johnny Marr did, and I think made quite a, he made quite a decent decent job of it. Bob Dylan's book sort of works. Although, I mean, it's all over the place, but so is he. I mean, he's all in the way that he's all over the place so it's sort of it suits it, it, it represents him quite well you know is it hard if you are the if you are the, the the artist writing your own story to like know which anecdotes to leave in or leave out because i know sometimes just being a radio announcer you have to sort of be like you have to do the self-edit like where you want to tell a story on the air but you're like you can't get too into detail you know you really have to develop that skill set and i'm just wondering if like an artist would have that ability we often don't we often don't at all um elvis costello uh, wrote his own story about, I don't know, four or five years ago. And it's way too, it's enormous. He could have been cut down to half the length and been an interesting book, I think, you know. But I mean, even for the writer themselves, the book will then go to an editor and it'll go through lawyers. And and uh, they might say, that story about the groupie and the fish, maybe that one shouldn't go in the book. You know? <laughs> <laughs> there's always things to look at. I mean, there's quite a few things in the Cup of Rob Halford book, which I probably should, I certainly should, wouldn't go into. Um, um, for, just for legal reasons, you know, it has to change one or two names along the way as well. Um, Nikki, Nikki Six was hilarious to see that the heron dog was riddled with, with libelous <laughs> stories. But of course, they were his diaries. And back then, these are his diaries. You know, he wrote them down in 1987. Um, and so he couldn't really start editing them. Um, but when, when, we, when we gave the manuscript to the publishers, they, they were sort of um, having kittens, basically. 
Uh, I remember I got a call from one lawyer saying um, uh, this this story about Nicky in the brothel in Germany and getting a blowjob at the same time as John Bon Jovi. I'm not sure this is very really actionable. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I'm sure it, I'm sure it probably is. Um, I'll speak to Nicky, and I spoke to Nicky, and I got as far as saying, um, Nicky, they want to take out the Bon Jovi story, and he said, um, Ian, tell them f you <laughs> if, that, if that the book's not being effing published. I said, okay, right. So, so I called them back to them. Nicky feels that it's authentic and realistic. So he feels he should stay in. You know, he feels strongly that creatively he should stay. Uh, and in the end, he stayed in. I mean, the publishers were trying to, and, and nothing had happened. Nothing, no comeback at all. Okay, that's amazing. Uh, it got worse. Ian, thank you so much for your time. Um, I really appreciate this. And I just think it's fascinating what you do. And, and I guess my last question for you would be too, because you just mentioned that you had been writing two books at one time, like how do you... Like, do you have a um, a daily routine for you because you're working at home? Like, how how many hours do you spend writing? Like, how do you work that out so that you're not overwhelmed and then like burnt out? Yeah, well, the first the first few weeks of the book, I signed the contract and I just run around, quite pleased myself, do a few interviews and get them transcribed and just leave them. The middle few weeks, so this, this this slight panic starts setting in, and I was like, how many words I got to do each day, and and then the last few weeks is absolute just blinkered, full on. I've got to do four thousand words today, you know, and and back and forth. And and I wish that I did sit down on the first day and write three thousand words and do that every day, but I just don't. It's just you know, it's the old the old blank page prevarication thing, basically. And also, of course, at the same time, I'm trying to take my boy to school and lead a normal life. So it's it's not it's difficult, you know. But you just, you just have to make it work. Really, you have to know you have to know. Okay, I've got I've got seven months to write an eighty thousand word book. Let's do this many interviews. Let's set this time aside, and and you, you get better at it as as you do more books. You get used to what you can do and, and what's realistic. Is there a magic n- uh, number kind of for like how long a book should be? You know, so that so that it's not too long. Like you were talking about Elvis Costello. No, normally, you get you get asked to write between about eighty and ninety thousand. That's, that's I'd say ninety percent of books. Sometimes okay. they get longer. Uh, Cliff, which is kind of hundred thousand. Rob Halford, uh, and I, I wrote one hundred and thirty-five thousand words, which isn't too far off being double the length of a normal but the publishers wanted to we had a few back and forth with the publishers we were trying to keep in certain things they wanted to cut it in the end it was 120,000 which we, we were quite we were quite miffed to lose a lot of the content but at the same time it's still half as long again as most books it's still very very long so you know it was a compromise in the end but, but I'm really happy with it in the end all the things that we lost I think were were expendable okay Ian you're awesome thank you so much for your time and I, I, I hope to have you back on the show in the future sure thank you thank you for having me that is uh, author Ian Gittins. Again, who's collaborated with artists like Nikki Six of Motley Crue, Billy Connolly, and Rob Halford of Judas Priest. You can learn more about them at iangittins.com. The Kelly Alexander Show. Thank you so much for spending time with us on the show this week. And a shout out to our guests, Ian Gittins and Miles Costello. My thanks, of course, to our super producer, Adam Briso. And don't forget that you can follow us on many different podcast platforms, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher Radio. We'd also love for you to grab all of our social media handles by hitting up our website, kellyalexandershow.com. Have a great week. You and I will chat soon. The Kelly Alexander Show.